count it a privilege to be here with you. I grew up in a home where I had never, ever even heard of Jesus Christ. Grew up in a home where I'd been to church once in my entire life. And it wasn't until the age of 23 that I was vacationing on the east coast of the United States. And God just literally grabbed my soul. And so as I look out upon you, most of you, I didn't get saved till I was 23 and knew nothing about it. And I thought, how could you go 23 years of life and no one stop you and tell you about Jesus Christ? The opportunities that you have being here at the Master's College, I hope you never take them for granted. Because all of you are already way ahead of where I was at the age of 23. So from day one, I've just had a burden in my heart. I don't have any time to waste. 23 years already gone. And what time God will yet give me, I want to be on the cutting edge for God. No room for games. No room for mickey-mousing around with the name of Jesus Christ. It's all or nothing. Count the cost if you're going to take up that cross and follow me. Because he's worthy of worship. He's worthy of me being his follower. And he's worthy of us spending the time this morning as a precious group of saints thinking through the reality. What do I need to do in my own life to make sure by the grace of God that I stay on that cutting edge? And one of the things I constantly try and do with the leadership in our church is I try and make them think. And I frequently will work through with them in different settings just a group of probing questions. And that's what I would like to do with you this morning. To illustrate this, a number of months ago, one of my associate pastors called me on a Saturday night told me he was having very severe chest pains. So he went into the hospital, and through all the tests that they were doing, they couldn't come to the conclusions that they needed to come to. So they told him, we need to do a heart cath. Because the only way we're really going to know what's going on inside that heart of yours, and you do have chest pains, is to take that little camera take it up through the vein and put it right inside that heart to see exactly what's going on. And I think in each of our lives, we need to stop ourselves very frequently, if not daily, to fulfill 2 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourselves daily to see if you be in the faith. 
And so what I would like for us to do this morning is I just simply want to give you a few questions that you could put, and I'd encourage every one of you to do this if you're not already doing it. Keep a praise in a prayer journal. And in that prayer journal, record your vulnerability points. Record some questions that you constantly run your life through as a grid to see how much or to what degree you're staying on the cutting edge for God. There's a statement in Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 18. Without vision, the people perish. And I think sometimes we can get so exposed if we've especially grown up in a Christian home, and maybe through your elementary and junior high and high school years, you were in a Christian school. Now you're at a Christian college. And maybe just about the totality of your life, you've been around Christians. And now you've got the opportunity of being in a school setting where God's going to give you some tools so you can go out into the harvest fields that are so white right here in L.A., California, America, let alone the, the uttermost parts of the earth. But what are some things I need to do to make sure my vision is crystal clear? My concept of God is so biblically sharp and sharpened daily that my concept of God really is determining my conduct. But some questions that help us examine. Where is my heart? Question number one. Questions that I run myself through and my leadership through every year. Am I more in love with the Lord than I was a year ago? Am I more in love with Jesus Christ than I was six months ago? If Romans 5.5 5 says the Spirit of God is shedding abroad in my heart a love for God, is that love growing? How do I measure it? How can I really answer that? 2 Corinthians 5.14, if you would turn there with me. 2 Corinthians 5.14, where Paul begins talking about the reality that when the Lord saves us, He has a very, a very specific purpose that we might become ambassadors for Jesus Christ, to represent the King who saved our souls. And in 2 Corinthians 5.14, reading out of the NIV, it says, For Christ's love compels us, it constrains us. It moves me on a daily basis because we, as true born-again Christians, are convinced, absolutely convinced, that this one, Jesus Christ, died for all, and therefore all died. And because of our understanding of that, that absolute truth, and that He died for all, verse 15, that all those who live should no longer live for themselves. Less of me, but more of you. Not I, but Christ. That you may increase, that I may decrease. Yes, no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and was raised again. How do I measure that? How do I measure that depth of love? For me, when I open this precious book every day, do I fall more in love with it? Or my daily devotion something that really just kind of lifts me out of myself at the beginning of a day and gets me so focused on God 
By your grace, I have another breath today. I'm alive today. What's your purpose for me with this other day of life you've given me? Are your devotions something that's fresh, that keeps you vitally and contagiously growing as a Christian? Do you find yourself having a more ravenous appetite for the Word of God? Because, beloved, the way you and I treat this book is the way we treat Jesus. He's the living Word. This is just His character in print. And so as I open this book, do I see that appetite that I believe is in Jeremiah 15, 16, when your words did come, I did eat them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. Why? Because I'm called by your name, Lord God Almighty. You are speaking to me as one of your children. Do you really find yourself gaining a deeper hungering and thirsting for the righteousness that Jesus talked about in Matthew 5? An appetite. To love the Lord is to love His Word. Second practical tool, tool to evaluate my love and its growth. Do I find myself becoming more of a giver and less of a taker? Do I find myself thinking more and more others, others, others? And if you're married, do you find yourself living more and more for the happiness of your spouse? or for yourself. See, I've not spent five minutes in marriage counseling and 16 years of ministry with two people who were givers. And too often today, Christian young couples think, well, hey, we're both Christians. We can get married. It'll work. Well, beloved, I'm going to tell you, don't you dare just marry a Christian. You better be marrying a vibrantly, contagiously growing Christian. Because if you want a growing marriage and you're seeking someone maybe right now for God to give you as a partner for a lifetime of ministry or a partner for a lifetime of ministry, whether it be the mission field or the pastor, or if you go into education or business, you still want a partner that you can minister with in a local church for the glory of God to touch people with the precious gospel of Jesus Christ. What are your qualifications? What are you looking for? Because growing Christians create growing marriages. And growing marriages are the most exciting privilege on earth because now you can serve together arm in arm is that agape love keeps filling your heart with that self-sacrificial attitude of being a giver and not a taker. Question three that ties in with that is an application. Do I find myself consequently having a growing hatred for sin? Because the more you're in love with the Lord, the more you'll hate sin. And the more you'll be sensitive to the sins in your own life and the vulnerability points in your own life. I like to jot down in my praise journal word pictures that God gives me so that when I study the Word... It's not only the words on a page, but God has given me a visual that really brings to life the meaning of something I want to have a better handle on. And again, to illustrate, my oldest daughter, many years ago, they had just finished building a, an apartment building down behind our home. And I like to take my children for walks. There's a large woods behind our home and across the street. And we just walk and talk about the Lord and creation and using word pictures with them 
to engraft God's Word upon their precious little hearts. But as we got near this building they were building, she said, Daddy, can we go inside? And we went inside, and she'd never seen a home under construction before. She's only three years of age. As we got inside, she saw a stairway. She said, Daddy, can we go upstairs and maybe see the airport over there behind the hill and see the planes take off? And so we went up the stairs, and as we got to the top of the stairs, the first thing I noticed as a protective father was there was no railing around the stairwell. And so I took a few moments and I said, Now, Rebecca, be, be very careful. Don't you go near this stairwell. There's no railing and you could walk right off the edge and you could really get hurt. So as we walked over to look out the window at the airport, I turned around to grab her hand and she wasn't there. And I turned and looked and, and she was walking towards the stairwell. And I said, Rebecca... And just as I finished her name, she turned and looked at me and took one more step and hit that top step. And you watched her little body twist and turn and contort as she bounced down the stairs. And as she laid at the bottom of the stairs, I was ripped to shreds internally. And by the grace of God, she jumped up smiling. Those little bodies are meant, I guess, to twist and bump and drop. But that gave me a word picture. God spoke to my heart and He said, Rory, if you will hurt that much over sin, you'll stay on the cutting edge for me. If you hurt as much as every time that body hit that stair, and that's your sensitivity to sin in your life. I'll be able to use you. And beloved, as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ as you sung earlier, you'll find yourself having such a hatred for sin. You'll flee even the appearance of it. Am I more in love with the Lord than I was a year ago? the last application I make for myself. Am I stirring afresh the gift that God has given me? Do I have a passion for some kind of ministry? Is that flame going up a little bit higher? The more I experience the privilege of being used by God, do I fall more in love with the privilege of serving my God? Do I know how to fan into flame as Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.6? Fan into flames. Stir up that gift. Appreciate it that God has given you the gift. Use it. Am I more in love with the Lord than I was a year ago? Question number two. What has my faith cost me? What has my faith cost me in the last month, the last six months, the last year? What sacrifices have I really made to serve the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? You remember at the close of David's life, he had an opportunity of building an altar. And the materials were offered to him free. And he said, no, 2 Samuel 24, 24, I will not offer that to the Lord which costs me nothing. And beloved, I think most of you comprehend that a faith that costs you nothing is worth nothing. 
Where are the sacrifices? One of the things I tried to build into our youth ministry when I was a youth pastor was taking young people into settings where they had to make sacrifices. No electricity. The girls could have no hair blowers, no curlers. The guys would sacrifice certain things, no showers. Little things as we were out on the mission field short-term mission trips, taking them, taking them into settings. We went to a little island called St. Croix in the West Indies. We knew the challenge would be great, but we went there to do door-to-door cold turkey evangelism. But living on that island and centered on that island was the world headquarters of a cult called the Rastafarians, a black supremacist group. And as we went door to door doing the work of evangelism, some of our young people were spit upon. Some of them were had doors slammed in their faces. If I recall correctly, Rob may have been on that trip. And it was interesting to see when the young people came back in the late afternoons, what their attitudes were after someone spit on you after someone mocked you, after someone slammed a door in your face. What does my faith cost me? The first night we were there, you know, I I can take a group in and I can ask the Lord to help the young people learn what they need to learn, but sometimes God has agendas for leaders that we may not have quite anticipated. And the first night we were there, my wife with me in our bed, my two little children in a bed next to us, and and I'm awakened by the air conditioner running excessively hard in this room we're in. And I tilt my head, and here's a man standing at the foot of our bed robbing our room. And I don't know if you've ever awakened to someone in your room with your wife and children there robbing your room and not knowing if the man has a knife, a gun, what his intentions are. But it was very sobering. It was, you know, I like to talk about utter dependency. I like to talk about my soul being anchored to Jesus Christ as the young lady sang. But when you're put in a setting like that, kind of brings that a little more alive. But by the grace of God, that whole trip made me walk away thinking a little more, I'm grateful for a sovereign God who protects. Because I yell, I didn't know, you, you don't sit there debating what to do. I awakened and saw the guy there and I just said, hey! And by the grace of God, he ran out of the room. And the only thing he had in his possession that was mine was a watch. But to show you how God confirms things, I had in my wallet $1,400 of traveler's checks and money for the whole trip, the expenses. That wallet just happened to fall out of my pocket as I took my pants off that evening and I laid it on the dresser and my wife happened to lay eight towels on top of it. And as he ran out the room, he took my pants 
but the wallet wasn't in there. And see, when God gives you things like that and you're stepping out and you're trying to serve Him and He gives you memories, I call them reference points, in each of our lives, what has my faith cost me? Because, beloved, those of you who have a burden to disciple people, when God takes you out of this institution and puts you in local churches or mission fields, wherever it is, you're going to run into a lot of Christians who will only serve the Lord when it's very, very convenient. And you're going to know better. But one of the challenges before you is going to be, how am I going to train those people? How am I going to disciple those people? So I can get them to begin living out the answer to that question, what does my faith cost me? Am I serving just because it's convenient? Again, to illustrate this, a number of years ago I was discipling a young man named Russ Stutler. Russ has a Japanese mother and an American father. And he'd had a burden all of his life to, Lord willing, someday minister to the Japanese. But his attitude was, God, could you really use me? You know, who am I to think I can go over to Japan and minister to the Japanese? Well, after being discipled for about two years, Russ's concept of God began to magnify. and He began to believe that God could possibly use him. I said, Russ, there's only one way to find out. Go. Just go. Go for a summer and see what happens. He went for a summer, came back home, and I could tell the first day we got together for lunch, he was just beaming with, he knew his calling in life. He said, but Rory, I've got a problem. I said, what's that? He said, I've got a fiancé who has no burden for the mission field. And he said, I think I may have to count the cost on this one. And he sat down at length to talk with his fiance, and they broke the engagement. And he went to Japan, where he is now, permanently as a missionary. And to show you how God confirmed the calling, he didn't send out a single request for finances, and God raised up every dime he needed to go. And when he got there, they gave him a job in the Japanese schools teaching English and now he's got a job there as a tent maker where he doesn't even need support anymore. And on top of that, God's given him a Japanese wife, helps his language training quite a bit. And on top of that, he's incredibly gifted as an artist and he's developed a puppet ministry that is now on national television in Japan. And he's sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ on national TV in Japan. But see, he had to count a cost. God honored that. And beloved, there are times in our lives when we think, I just don't know, Lord, if I could give that up to get there. But when you begin asking that question and answering it, watch God unleash the hidden agendas of His own blessings for your life as He begins taking you into areas to do things that you never thought He could use you in. Question number three. Has my name ever been on Satan's lips? Remember in the book of Job, the book of Luke, chapter 22, 
Satan approached God, approached Jesus Christ, asked for permission to go after Job, to go after Peter. And one of the things for me, if I want to be on the cutting edge for God, that means I'm going to have to be stepping out onto Satan's turf. And beloved, if I'm going to step out on Satan's turf, I better know how to put my armor on. I better know what it means to have the mind of Christ, that breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, that shield of faith to quench all those fiery darts of doubt and discouragement and despair. Every time one of our couples prays about entering our discipleship ministry, I tell them right up front, be ready. Be ready. Because if you're going to enter this discipleship ministry and you're going to be trained to be more effective for the kingdom, I can almost guarantee you within six months you're going to have a major trial in your life of some kind. Guaranteed. It's just as if Satan knows how much God is going to use you and he approaches God and says, Hey, I... I I hear that uh, this Rob Provost guy wants to get into one of these two seven groups. God, well, will you let me test him to really know what's in his heart? Will you let me really take him through some things here? And of course, God allows it. Because you just study James and as you study First Peter and you, you study all the other passages regarding the trials. That's one of the ways, whether I like it or not, you learn your best lessons in the furnace of affliction. And all of us have some dross of some kind in our lives that God needs to subtract. And so as we go out on that turf and say, God, use me to make a difference in this world. Use me to advance your kingdom. Your name will most likely go onto Satan's lips. One of the men who just recently began attending our church has taught for 25 years in the secular university there in Akron, Akron University. He's written eight of the textbooks that they use in the computer department there at Akron University. He's shared his faith with every student he's had for 20 years plus. Led a lot of kids to the Lord. Well, recently, one of his former students has now become his boss, a lesbian. And she undertook an effort a year ago to destroy his name. Because his name is synonymous with the name Jesus. And right now, he's in the middle of a potential court battle because she's filled his file with lies, twisted half-truths, judgments based on appearances, jumping to conclusions, and she's driven him out of the university. But see, his name has been on Satan's lips. And I don't know what the end result is, but God's going to be glorified when this is all over with, because that's the way God does things. 1 Peter 1.7, He lets us go through that trial to test our faith. To see if it comes forth proving itself of being genuine and worthy of the name Jesus Christ. 
has my name ever been on Satan's lips? Question number four. Do I have the habit of praising God no matter what? Do I have the spiritual discipline in my life of praising God in spite of what seems to be? You know, we can read verses that we're to give thanks in all things, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, because this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus the Lord. We can read Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 that we're to trust in the Lord with all of our heart, not lean to our own understanding, but acknowledge Him. We can say we think we have a sovereign God who does not have plans to harm us, but to prosper us and to do us well. And I can say I believe that everything that comes into my life comes through God's hands first. Because I'm a child of the King. And a father always has a watchful eye to protect his children. But do I really praise God no matter what? The greatest challenge that I had as a youth pastor, I've been discipling a young man named Doug. He was a babe in Christ. His parents were very, very weak in the faith. He was getting no spiritual nurture from home. He was entrapped in rock music. In that day, there were two groups called Black Sabbath and Kiss. Knights in Satan's service. And this guy was trying to listen to that music and be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I said, Doug, uh, there's something here that's got to go. But you've got to pray about it. Because I don't want you to try to give this up in the flesh. Because if you give it up in the flesh, it'll come back. But if you maintain the spiritual disciplines of a daily walk with God, and the Spirit begins to, to build that life of a daily obedience, that obedience will lead you to victory. And God will take away the desire for that music you're listening to, which you know isn't any good for you. And he said, well, I don't listen to the words. I just like the rhythmic beat. Some of us have been there before. Well, about three months later, Doug was working out at our church camp. I went out to meet with him. He began sharing with me how he had just the previous weekend burned all of his albums. I never told him to do that. Never even hinted at it. But the Spirit moved him to do that. We started talking about now that he was a sophomore in high school beginning to enter his junior year how he had a burden for the junior hires that were trapped in the rock music like he had been and he was telling me the strategies that God had laid upon his heart to go back and minister in the junior high three weeks later I got a phone call and Doug had been killed in a motorcycle accident And as a youth pastor, it was very hard not to say, why, God? Why? Here's a young man who just gotten over the hump, who had just counted the cost, was ready to be a servant for you in an area of rock music, and he was popular out at our camp. The junior hires just hung on him. 
And he got killed in a senseless accident where a woman pulled in front of him, didn't see him coming, gone. Scripture says it's like a vapor. But when one of your best friends and one of the young people you've been discipling is gone, the vapor reality hits much closer to home. And I learned a very important lesson through the midst of all that. And that was how to praise God in spite of what seems to be. Because God used Doug's death to literally create a revival in our youth group. And out of that youth group, today, there are over 45 young people who are pastors, pastors' wives, missionaries, missionaries' wives. On the cutting edge for God all over the world, plus teachers, lawyers, doctors on the cutting edge for God all over the world, because the kids in the youth group stopped themselves and asked themselves this question. Am I as ready today to meet my Jesus as Doug was ready? If God took me home today, would I hear, well done, good and faithful servant? If God took all of us in the next minute, would we hear that? Are we sure? Do I praise God in spite of what seems to be? And then within six months, 14 teenagers had come to know Christ that Doug had witnessed to. And one of them was one of the pallbearers that I led to Christ right next to Doug's gravestone in his cemetery. And beloved, I've learned to no longer ask why, but to say who. Who, God, the God who's sovereign, the God who has agendas that I don't understand, the God who works all things for His own glory, even if it means taking the life of a 15-year-old in His prime, from my viewpoint, And see, we can talk about praising God in spite of what seems to be. But when God takes us through days like those, I record them in a praise journal. They become those reference points. They become those benchmarks. Because if you're going to serve the Lord with the rest of your life, you're going to have days where you're going to have doubts. You're going to have days where you're going to be discouraged. You're going to have days when you say, God, did you really call me to this? And all you've got to do is flip back through that praise journal and watch all the reference points God has given you, the benchmarks as He has grown you in that grace and knowledge of Christ. And you'll have the faith, the faith builders as I call them, to keep on keeping on. Question number five in closing. Ephesians 3.20, if you would turn there with me. This is the theme we're going to be spending a lot of time discussing at the retreat tomorrow. Ephesians 3.20. The context, Paul's praying for the Ephesian church that it would be strengthened with all the glorious power and riches of Jesus Christ, that the Spirit would truly grab the hearts of these precious Ephesian people, that they may be rooted and established in the love of Christ. 
that they might be filled with that fullness of the measure of God. And then Paul explains how God's going to answer that prayer. Ephesians 3.20 Now to Him, God Almighty, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, He's got His own agendas, according to His power, the power of His Spirit, that is at work within us that truly know the Lord, to Him be the glory as He fulfills those agendas in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. A number of years ago, many years ago, I was at a conference. And the opening declaration of the pastor at that conference was this. When was the last time God did something in your life that you cannot explain? When was the last time you had an Ephesians 3.20 experience? Answer to prayer specifically. Has there ever been anything in your life that's happened that you cannot explain? Because one of the subtleties of Satan is to get you and I, because you maybe have great abilities as a vocalist, pianist, businessman, whatever it is, you have such great ability, such great charisma, it's very easy to minister in the flesh. You don't need the Spirit's help because you're so talented or so gifted or you've done it so many times before. And Satan will even help you minister if you'll minister in the flesh. Because God gets no glory. And usually people ministering in the flesh subtly pat themselves on the back. But one of the things I've trained our leadership is to constantly be praying Ephesians 3.20. God, I want You to do things in my life that I cannot explain so only You can get the glory for it. Whether it's the people I'm discipling, the children I'm teaching, the people I'm trying to share Christ with, God, You do it all. One of your young men here that I had a chance of spending some time with last evening asked me to pray for him regarding a certain event that was going to occur that he wasn't quite sure of. I got to speak with him briefly as I came in the door here this morning and just to ask him, well, how'd it go? And just to see him break out in a grin, you knew that God had blessed the task before him. And, and I prayed for him before I went to bed last night, just asking God to do something that God would reveal He had His own agenda. That God was really in control of this situation. That's why He used this young man to deal with the situation. And see, when you begin living on that level, that cutting-edge level of Christianity where you're constantly anticipating and asking God to just do such miraculous things, and yet through common vehicles, because not all of us are but clay pots. And what makes a clay pot valuable is what's in it. Your heart. Your craving to be used of God. Your craving to make sure the Lord gets all of the glory. But those Ephesians 3.20 faith builders. See, I have the privilege of pastoring the most vibrantly growing church in the state of Ohio a recent 
guy came through that was doing all these different polls on growing churches, and a Christian radio station called me and, and shared that with me. But you know, when I got that information, I didn't share it with the church because we're not interested in the size of our church. We're interested in its depth. We're interested in its character. We're interested in people knowing that, yes, God is building a church, but He builds a church by building people. And if you want to be a part of an exciting ministry, growing Christians are contagious. Just get around one for a little while. And they'll spur you on a little closer to the cross, a little closer to the Lord. And I think in every one of your lives, you need a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy, male or female. You need someone to disciple you, your Paul. You need a Barnabas to encourage you. Someone who's always there to edify, to encourage you, to hold you accountable. And yet you also need a Timothy. You need someone to disciple. Because God will teach you a lot more about Him even discipling someone else than you'll ever imagine. Those of you that have discipled people know what I'm talking about. But again, being used of God, the Ephesians 3.20 principle. We've got a, a young couple just beginning to grow in our church in closing. And they've undertaken a burden about two years ago to start a crisis pregnancy center in an area of town where there's a lot of young ladies getting pregnant, a lot of illegitimate births, a lot of abortions. And they didn't have the funds to do this, but they just took it as a step of faith, asking God to use them to do something of an Ephesians 3.20 nature. And this lady has kept a journal of all the things that God has done to confirm the calling to that ministry that they simply cannot explain. And to share two of those with you in closing, a number of weeks ago, a woman shows up and brings in four cases of formula a very special formula that very, very few babies need or can handle because of the contents of it. And she thanked the lady for the four cases of formula. And she said, but we've been open two years and we've never once had a single request for this formula. And three hours later, a young mother walks in carrying her baby doesn't have two dimes to rub together, guess what she needed? The very formula that had brought in had been brought in a few hours earlier in the quantity of four cases. Coincidence! Not with our God. There is no coincidences with a God who is sovereign, who enlarges as you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then just two weeks ago, two women came visiting the center and they said, you know, one of your women came out and shared with us a few weeks ago over at a gathering we had and, and we're just here to volunteer our time. See, we've had a lot of experience dealing with handicapped newborns and very few of any new mothers know how to handle a handicapped newborn. And she said, well, come into the back. And, and the lady that had done the speaking sat down with the two women. And she said, you know, I really do appreciate you coming, but in two years we've not had a single woman come in here who had a handicapped newborn. And beloved, while they were sitting there talking, a woman came in holding a handicapped newborn.
And see, I'm not surprised by any of these types of things anymore. You expect them. You, you pray in that fashion, asking God to do those types of things. And see, when God unleashes that prayer mentality in a student body or in a church, you will never, ever be the same. And you'll never pray the same. Because as God continues to do these things, it pushes each of us a little more to the cutting edge. And see, we can talk about prayer, take classes on prayer, gather in prayer groups, but is God taking our level of prayer to that Ephesians 3.20, now unto Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above and beyond anything I've asked or thought. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, we thank You for the reality that Jesus Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. He has promised to build a church that the gates of hell will not prevail against as He builds His people, as He uses the men and women sitting here before You this very moment to disciple others, to know that to whom much has been given, much is required. And Father, may we count it a blessing to be blessed that we might bless others, that everything You've given us is not to be warehoused, but to be passed out to someone else as we find faithful men and women who also desire to be on the cutting edge for our King of kings and Lord of lords, in whose holy and precious and powerful name we pray. Amen. Thank you.